This morning we are wrapping up our message series called Rooted and Growing. We've been in this for uh, all of the this year. This is our 11th week, and uh, we're wrapping up not the principles of Rooted and Growing, because that is uh, what we are to be doing as a church, but we're going to wrap up uh, speaking about this each week for now. And uh, this morning we're going to do that by finishing up what we started last week. Uh, we're going to be all over Scripture this morning in different passages. And so I, I want to say to you, as we do every week, if you don't have a Bible, we would love to gift you with one. If you're on live stream and don't have a copy of God's Word, let us know that, and we will get you a copy. But here in the building, we'd love to give you one. You can see Nick uh, right up front, and he would be glad to uh, give you one of the Bibles that we have. Last week, we started in Jeremiah, and and honestly, it was a pretty heavy sermon uh, I talked to someone after the the service about that. Uh, there was just a there was a lot of weightiness. Uh, the word's always weighty, but there was a lot of weighty and heaviness to Jeremiah's text last week because he was speaking about the injustice of God's people. That even though they were going to worship and serve the Lord each week at the temple, they were not practicing justice, and their actions and the way they lived were completely disconnected from uh, the their worship life and. And so we had to go through that to understand what biblical justice is. And it was, I think, good for us to consider those heavy words for our own, for our own souls. But this week, uh, we're going to try and take that foundation that we laid last week where we tried to define what biblical justice is. And we said that's important because when we talk about justice, we do not want to simply define that as the culture does, or perhaps uh, how we would in our own minds based on our experiences, but we want to know what the Bible means by justice. And so we're going to take that foundation, we're going to build on it this week. I want to remind us of three attributes of God that we saw last week in His Word that we said, you see these continually together in Scripture. And so if you have a copy of... Uh, the worship guide, we have notes there if you want to engage with those. But here's three reminders from last week, three attributes of God that we find together in Scripture. Steadfast love, righteousness, and justice. So what do those mean? Steadfast love is that God is unconditionally faithful to His people. That is what the Bible means by steadfast love. That for His people... We cannot do anything to make God love us more. We cannot do anything to make God love us less. He is faithful to us because of Himself, not because of what we do. It's unlike any love that we can experience on the earth, which is often conditional love based on uh, our performance. But the love of the Father is much different. Righteousness means that God alone determines what is right. If you just were to ask Someone, or if you were just to make the statement, look, just do what's right. Everyone would define right in a different way. Uh, there may be some general principles that we agree on, but you would find separation and differences between us as we try to determine what is right. And what the Bible says when it says God is righteous is that God alone determines what is right and what the standard of right is. And it is up to us to bend toward God and His standard of right, rather than looking at, at His Word and determining that we think it's unfair or wrong. We're to bend toward God. And then finally, justice. 
Justice is when God calls His people to action. And that action is based on His perfect character and law. Justice is when you and I, as the people of God, act. And we act in such a way that is in complete agreement, in line with God's law, His commands, and His character. And therefore, injustice is when we act in ways that violate God's commands or God's character. So that was our foundational understanding last week of biblical justice, and now we want to build on that this week. And what we hope to accomplish is to think practically. What does it mean for you and I to do justice? When you leave here today, when you enter into your week, and you see this call where God calls His people to action, to do justice... What is that practically going to look like? What does it mean for us as a church community, as a local church body, to work for justice in this community that God has placed us? The Bible describes local churches as being like a having a lampstand in the community where they're located that shines a light. What does it look like for us to shine the light of justice in Pinson and the surrounding areas where God has ordained This place God has ordained for us. You're going to hear from some members of our church today. You're going to hear how God is leading some of them to practice justice in their personal context. You're going to hear how we as a church are already trying to work for justice in our community through existing ministries and some new opportunities that we think God is setting before us. And what I want to exhort you to today is this. Ask yourself, God, what are you saying to me about all of this? What are you saying to me specifically about the practicing of justice in my life? Is God stirring you to something brand new? Some new opportunity or new purpose that you've not sensed before? Or is God rekindling in you an old desire that that you once had, but somehow that's faded away. Listen for His voice and respond as He speaks. So to do this, we're going to walk through six biblical traits of those who practice justice. Now, this is not an all-encompassing list, okay? So this is not all that the Bible says about how we practice justice. But I want us to see six connected points Six traits that the Word of God shows us that if we're going to practice justice, we should embrace these traits and do them. Number one, those who practice justice make sacrificial generosity their way of life. Those who practice justice in the Bible make sacrificial generosity their very way of life. So Psalm 112 is where we're going to start. It was our opening reading this morning that Rob did for us. And what we saw in Psalm 112 as Rob was reading that was the picture of a godly person. It's what the Bible was describing for us. A person who fears the Lord and delights in Him. Fears God, trembles at His Word, and delights in the Lord. And what we see in Psalm 112 is that the godly don't lead perfect lives. The psalmist talks about how this godly person gets bad news sometimes. 
This godly person has enemies or adversaries. And this godly person will find themselves in circumstances where they are going to have to choose to not be afraid. So this is not the picture of a perfect life. Godliness does not guarantee us that we will not experience trouble. But what we also learn about this godly person is that God has blessed them. That even as they deal with difficulties, God has given them blessings. And one of the blessings that He has given them is financial means. I always say this, we have to be careful when we hear the Bible or read the Bible talking about the rich. Because we, if we allow ourselves, will define who is rich based on our understanding of economics in 2021 America. That is not the standard by which we would define those who are wealthy or those who are poor. Compared to the rest of the world, the majority of us would be considered the rich. But this godly person has been blessed with financial means. And the psalmist writes in verse 5 that it is well with this godly person because they deal generously and they conduct their affairs with justice. And there is a connecting point there that a generous person is conducting themselves in justice. Generosity and being a person of generosity is one way in which you practice justice. And verse 9 specifies what that looks like. They have distributed freely to the poor. And if you look at the original language, it's interesting. Distributed freely is one verb, and the tense of the verb indicates that this is an ongoing, frequent, constant action in this godly person's life. This is not a one-time generosity, but they are continually distributing to the poor. Literally, they are continually scattering the blessings that God has given them. They are throwing it out to other people. And the Bible calls this justice. The flip side of that you could find in Jeremiah 5. We won't turn there, but you could read it later. But in Jeremiah 5, the prophet describes those who have sinned against God, those who do not fear God. And he says they too have financial means. But they have financial means, and with that financial means, they have chosen to keep those finances only for themselves, to spend it on just themselves. And God's commentary about those people is this, they judge not with justice the cause of the fatherless or defend the rights of the needy. To have means and not care for other people is a form of injustice, according to the Bible. So remember, justice is when we act based on God's perfect character. So I want to remind you that we are sacrificially generous because God has been sacrificially generous to us. Psalm 112 that describes this godly, generous person follows Psalm 111, which describes the generous and faithful God that we serve, who provides for the needy. And Psalm 111 says His hands are faithful and just. And the ultimate example in all of this is Jesus. 
Jesus chose to give up what was His. He chose to give up His rights. He chose to suffer injustice in order that He could scatter His inheritance to anyone who would believe. He has freely shared with us all that was His. And to do that, He had to go to the cross and take on our sin. When you and I practice sacrificial generosity, we are emulating Jesus. And the Bible says we are practicing justice, who's the very way of life is to be generous. Not keeping all that we have for ourselves, but learning to scatter our blessings. And church, don't think of it just as money. What has God given you? Home? Property? Family? Vehicle? Experience? Wisdom? Everything that He has blessed you with. He intends to think about, for you to think about how that could be scattered to help other people. And that is a way that we practice justice. Number two, biblical trait of someone who practices justice is they show compassion. To practice justice, they show compassion. This is from Isaiah 30. In Isaiah 30, we're not going to read all of it, but in Isaiah chapter 30, the first 17 verses of that chapter are pretty bleak. The prophet Isaiah is talking about the people of God, that they are rebellious, that they are unwilling to listen to Him, that they rely on themselves and not God. And 17 verses lays out this indictment against God's people for this rebelliousness. And then you get to verse 18, and it gives God's response. 17 verses about the rebelliousness of man, and you get to verse 18, and how is God going to respond? And this is what Isaiah says, Therefore, therefore, because His people are rebellious, the Lord waits to be gracious to them. He exalts Himself to show mercy to His people. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for Him. Isaiah says that God's response is rather than bring them to an end, God is bent on waiting and being gracious. How many of us in this room have experienced the patience of God in the midst of our rebellion? All of us. That God has not brought us to our end and what we deserve, but He has chosen to wait and be gracious to us. And the Bible says that this compassion is because God is just. Because He is a God of justice. Biblical justice does not exclude compassion and mercy. It includes it. Jenna, if you, if you will, would you, would you come up? I've asked Jenna Cleveland. She was sharing a story um, earlier this week with me about an opportunity that she had recently to follow through on something that she had been wanting to do for quite some time. And as she was sharing it with me, I think it's a perfect example of what we're talking about. And I asked her if she would be willing to share this testimony with you today. So I'm going to grab the mic and let her share. Hi, I'm Jenna. Um, I shared a maybe a few months ago about this, so a lot of you know already, but I had a younger brother 
who passed away of an overdose about four years ago. Um, and ever since then, uh, I've had it kind of in my heart to get um, this training for a drug called Narcan or Naloxone. Um, it's a drug that has been used uh, to save my brother's life at one point um, in a restaurant. Um, when when someone overdoses on opiates, they can um, get depressed breathing and they're not able to breathe, which is not good. So um, this drug basically can sort of knock away the opiate and make them kind of be able to breathe again. Um, so it's been used to save my brother's life and he actually had also used it uh, to save one of his friend's life, um, I believe. So uh, I don't know, it just had been in my heart. And I have a friend in Auburn who has a ministry uh, called Redeeming Grace that's a uh, a new ministry that it's kind of like a halfway house for women in the Opelika, Auburn area. Um, and she was having a booth at a, like a fair that they had in uh, Avondale last week. And so I went and got a bunch of information. So if any of you would like information um, about the crisis, uh, I'd be happy to share any of that. Um, but I also, this training super easy and free, and they do it online now because of COVID. So if anyone is interested in that, just talk to me about it. Um, but at first when David asked me about this, I was kind of like, I don't know how this relates to justice, or <laughs> um, maybe I had a very narrow view of it. But then I thought of... Uh, the Bible Project has a video that would be awesome for kids about righteousness and justice. And it talks about a piece of it is making other people's problems your problems. And so I guess then I was like, I, I can see maybe the connection with it. But um, I don't know if I'll ever use this, but I just, I wanted to be in a place where if I did need it, I'd be able to help someone maybe in a way that I would have wished could have happened with Thomas. You ask yourself. That's odd. Okay. Ask yourself, how do I show compassion to people in my life? And what I felt was very clear to me about what Jenna was sharing the other day when we were talking was that because of some of her experiences, if she was ever in a place to where there was someone in front of her who was dying of an overdose, that she wanted to be in an opportunity to be able to maybe save their life. I'm going to be very real for a moment, okay? There are those who would say that people dying of drug use They caused that. That is what they deserve. Many families in here have family members who've struggled with drug addiction. My father died of an accidental drug overdose. Every single one of us, every single day, breathe air in and out only because of the mercy of God. Every single day, we live under the sovereign care of a God who chooses in Christ to hide His face from our sins and be compassionate to us. 
And if you and I are going to practice justice like God did, or like God does, we must be people of compassion who relate to others not by what they deserve, but by patience and kindness. And it is going to take a complete re- reorienting of our thought process in order for us to be people of compassion who practice justice. And this, this is how God has led you in. It may not be exactly how God leads you, but how is He showing you not only to be compassionate, but to prepare to be compassionate? To be ready to give or to help someone who's in crisis. That is a path of justice. Number three, biblical traits of those who practice justice. Number three, they're honest. They are honest. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 and 15. Isaiah is describing a city in which God cannot find justice. And Isaiah says that city, perhaps Jerusalem, is a place where truth and honesty and integrity have ceased. And what is in its place is false witness and lies. And the result of that is there is no justice. Throughout the Bible, there is a definitive link and correlation between honesty and justice. And there is a definitive link and correlation between lies and injustice. Proverbs 11.1 says that a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Now, that may not easily be interpreted for us, but in the early days of commerce in Israel, a weight in a scale was used to determine an item's value that you were selling or buying. And so some people would alter that scale or they would fix the scale in order to show a false weight so that they could cheat people and get more money. And the Bible says, this is a grave injustice to God. People who live in such a way as to live with a false balance, that's an abomination of the Lord. But if you're a person of justice who weighs honestly life and its affairs, then that is God's delight. For you and I to practice justice requires that we be people of integrity. And let me remind us that integrity is best seen in what we do when no one is around, when no one is looking, and when no one will catch us. To practice justice, we need to be people of honesty. We need to use just weights in our words, in our actions. We need to be honest in our dealings with people. We need to be faithful in our marriages. We need to turn away from gossip or critical words in our community, in our church, in our families. We need to avoid any hint of dishonesty or theft. We need to be people who our yes is a yes, our no is a no. We need to be people who Only give our word if we know that we can keep it. And if we give our word, we do it. 
This is a way of practicing justice according to the Bible. Number four, biblical traits of those who practice justice. Number four, they work for equity in their context. People who practice justice biblically work for equity in their context. Psalm 99.4 speaks of God, the Lord, and says that He is the King who in His might loves justice and He has established equity. The you there, when you read it, the king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. The you is emphatic in Psalm 99.4. To the, to the point that it is equivalent to only you, God, have established equity. The psalmist says God loves justice, and in that justice, He has pre- prepared and provided equity for His people. Now exactly what does that mean? You and I, as we've already talked about, we need to understand our terms. And we have to be very careful that we don't take what we think a word means, bring it into Scripture and apply it. Rather, we have to learn what the Bible means when it uses a word, and we have to apply that to our lives. The most common way that the word equity is used in the Bible is not equal. The most common way that it is used is to denote an upright path or a straight path, one that is not crooked. If you and I assume here that equity means in everything God is equal, we're going to run into some issues. Because the reality is in the kingdom of God, not everything is equal. Our salvation in Christ makes us equal. But the Bible shows us, for example, that one day when Christ returns, Christ will reward His people individually for the way they live their lives. And those rewards will not all be equal. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5, even the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 indicate to us that there will be a variety of rewards that are given to God's people when Christ returns based on what they've done in this life. Their salvation is not based on what they've done, but what they receive from God is based on what they've done. It will not be everyone gets a participation trophy. We will be rewarded for what we've done. We also have to be careful to not assume that equity means fairness in the way we would define fairness. Equity may mean fairness, but it means fairness in the eyes of God. And fairness is something that we often send through the filter of our own mind. How many of you have a child that has looked at you at some point and said, that's not fair? How many of you children have parents in this room that you have seen say to a situation, that's not fair? We all do it. We have to remember that we don't get to determine what's fair. As a matter of fact, God may often act in ways that we think are unfair. 
that offend our sense of fairness. I'll give you an example. In John 12, a lady named Mary of Bethany took a very expensive ointment. The Bible says it was worth a year's salary for a day laborer. So imagine taking a year's salary and you buy this ointment. And she took this ointment and in just a moment, she poured it all out on the head and the feet of Jesus to anoint Him. And Judas stood up and denounced that as an act of injustice. He said, why did she do this? Why did we not take this ointment, sell it, and give it to the poor? Which most of us would probably say would have been the fair thing to have done. But Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor to take care of. And you should. But you're not always going to have me here in the flesh to be worshipped in the way that she just worshipped me. In other words, Jesus said in that moment, the equitable thing in God's eyes was not what you and I may have thought was fair. So what is equity in the Bible? I think we best see it in Proverbs chapter 2, which is what... uh Lamar read to us just a moment ago. And there in Proverbs 2, we are told, if you will make your ear attentive to wisdom, if you will incline your heart to receive understanding, if you will call out for insight and ask God, show me your glory. Show me what is real. Show me your knowledge. If you will do that, God will answer. And He will give you the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. As a matter of fact, the Bible says He has stored up wisdom that He will pour out to you if you ask Him for it. And in that, Proverbs 2, Solomon says that when you cry out for this wisdom and God gives it, then you will understand, in verse 9, righteousness and justice and equity Every good path. That ending phrase, every good path, I think best describes what the Bible means by equity. Whatever path is good to the Lord is how the Bible would describe what is equitable. If it is upright, if it is straight in God's eyes, then that is equity and you and I should pursue it. And we need wisdom to know what God finds to be equitable. In God's eyes, is it equitable to mistreat someone in any way based on their ethnicity or skin color? Absolutely not. There's no place for that in the kingdom of God. It's not equitable. God has given us the wisdom to know that. So in our context, if we see that happening, in any frame of reference that we can stand against, we should. Because God has called us to that, to practice justice. From wisdom, should we care for people who are at a disadvantage because they are in a land or a region that is foreign to them? Yes, it is throughout the Bible. What does that mean for us? Let me be real for a moment. Do you know how many people surround Agape 
that don't speak English. Do you know how many people surround this church that don't go to church because they don't understand what's being said when they get there? Would you go to a church where you didn't know anything that was being said or sung? We get into... We focus on the wrong things. I said last week, we're a nation of laws. I believe that. I believe under the Lord we should obey the laws of the land. But we focus on the wrong things. What we should focus on is what God has done. What could agape do? Would it be equitable in God's eyes for the church to stand up, for the church to seek help, for the church to figure out a way to teach people in their community the primary language of that community? Or would it be equitable for the church to say, we want people to come here who don't speak this language, so how do we work in this place so that when they get here, they will understand the glory of God in the face of Jesus? I'm waiting for the day where God causes someone to stand up and say, that's my passion, I want us to do it. I'm waiting for that moment. It takes a special capability to do that. You have to understand a foreign language. You have to know how to connect people. But I'm waiting for that to happen because there is a subset of this community that we will never reach if we can't do that. Is it equitable to feed the hungry? Is it equitable to know that there are people in your community who are hungry and feed them without judgment? And my response to that is yes. And Agape does that. We have a ministry that feeds people who are hungry. We've had this ministry here for many years. And I want to say to us that it should not be easily overlooked. It shouldn't just be that thing we do one Sunday a month and some people participate and others don't. Like We should know what we're doing when we put money toward groceries to give away to people in the community who are hungry is a practicing of justice. I asked Mary Ledbetter, who oversees that ministry, if she would speak this morning about that ministry. And she contracted that out to someone else, unbeknownst to me until yesterday. And so actually we have a video that we're going to show. Um, that uh, describes and talks about the ministry of the food pantry as Mary asked for it to be described. So uh, I'm going to let them pull that up. We'll watch this together, and then we'll talk some more. The rest of that said, but for you, it's in the back. So I saw that video yesterday, so... Um, good job, Will. Thank you, Mary, for, uh, providing some information about the food pantry. We had another church in our community grant us a few weeks ago $4,000 to buy food for our food pantry. We need help for people who are willing to go buy groceries now with someone else's money, as Will put it to stock the shelves, to help keep it organized, to get bags ready. But we need people who will, on that Sunday, go out and pray with people, if they'll let them. 
to show them the love of Christ as they come. We don't want to just meet a physical need. We want to do that, but we want to meet a physical need in hopes that the Lord will allow us to share with them about spiritual needs. This is a way and a pathway of justice, and it's one that we don't need to just overlook. So you can participate. We ask you to participate and consider how you could do that. Mary can use some help through the week getting those kinds of things ready. Um, and uh, I know Kim is helping her lead that ministry as well. So they, they, they need help in getting some of that and going and doing some of the grocery shopping. So you can talk to Mary or sign up to help with that ministry. And on the Sundays that we have it, next Sunday is our food pantry for this month. We're going to have a gospel letter in all of the bags sharing the gospel with people who come. We're going to invite them to our Good Friday service and to our Easter Sunday morning service. You can be praying about those things, that the Lord would use them. And you can participate in, in just seeing if people will let you pray for them as a pathway of justice to work for equity in our context. Number five, biblical trait of those who practice justice is they strive to make Jesus known. This is maybe... If we'd have done these in order, perhaps this should have been the very first one. That the way you and I practice justice is by trying to make Jesus known to other people. Isaiah 42. In the first four verses of Isaiah 42, one of the servant songs of Isaiah, he writes about the coming Messiah, who we know to be Jesus. And he says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till He has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for His law. All of creation groans, waiting for the return of Jesus and the establishment of perfect and final justice on the new earth. And for the world to truly know justice, for the world that cries out every day over injustice. For the world to truly know justice, they must know Jesus. And God's plan for them to know Jesus is us. Not leaders or just leaders, but everyone who calls upon Christ. We have been given a commission to make Him known. Not just through a ministry in the church, but in the context that we find ourselves every day when He scatters us. In every place we go, in everything that we do, that's our context, and God has placed us there to make Him known. And we have a culture that fights against that. Many of us in this room spend numbers of hours, the majority of our waking hours, in some type of environment, in some type of corporation, where we've been told, don't talk about Jesus. And if you do, you might lose your job. And if the plan of God is for us to make Jesus known in our context, where do we think that has come from? What if we were bold with no fear? 
What if we believed that even if we lost our job because we shared Jesus, that He could provide us something better? What would that look like? What would would it look like if we were bold in interactions at the store or the gas station or wherever He takes us? And I'm asking this of myself as much as I am any of you. Last week after the service, I started talking to someone and they were just asking, like, how, but how, how do you practically do that? And it is an excellent question because all of us would nod our head to evangelism. All of us who are Christians would say, yes, we should make Jesus known. And this is a way in which we practice justice. But what do we do? Like, how do we do that? Maybe it's just asking somebody if we can pray for them. But when they say yes, we pray for them right then, right there. We don't just say, I'll be praying for you. We actually say, could I, could I pray for you right now? Maybe we make a relationship with someone and they share something that we can pray for them about and we will find a connection to our own testimony that we can share with them something God has done in our life and helped us through a time of difficulty. Maybe we just figure out ways to do good works in the name of Jesus. The Bible shows us that. Let your light shine before men, doing good deeds that they might glorify your Father who is in heaven. Maybe we think, how could I do something good for them and let them know I did it because of God? Maybe we go buy small copies or paperback copies of the New Testament. Maybe we get a dozen of them and we keep them in our car. And we're just ready that when God gives us an opportunity, we hand out a copy of the New Testament to someone and we give them a suggestion on where they could start reading. Maybe we invite them to church or invite them to come to us or come with us to a Bible study. We practice justice through evangelism. It is important for us to consider how we do that in our context, in our daily lives. Finally, number six, biblical trait of those who practice justice is they care for the vulnerable. They care for the vulnerable. In Psalm 82, God is addressing likely leaders, probably the religious leaders of Israel, And He is addressing them, telling them that they have failed to give justice to the vulnerable. He says to them, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless and maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. How long will you judge unjustly? He was saying they were judging unjustly with injustice because they were failing to take care of the weak and the fatherless to maintain the rights of the afflicted and the destitute and to rescue the weak and the needy. Throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, the vulnerable are those who are in dangerous circumstances. The vulnerable are those, often the poor or the oppressed, the orphan, the widow, the physically weak, the mentally weak. And God says it is justice to take care of those people. It is justice to take care of the vulnerable. I started saying to you as early as January of 2019 
that I felt like the Lord was not done at Agape using us to work justice for the orphans and endangered families. And I said to you, and I still say to you today, that I believe God is going to use us, as He has in the past, not only to bring help to families who are in distress, but I believe He is going to raise up those who would be willing to open their home to the vulnerable. Through foster care, through adoption. Some of us, we've wrestled with that idea before. Some of us, we have said, I think God is going to call us to that one day. Some of us immediately hear that and say, that's, that's, not, that's not me. That's not what God's going to call me to. You're probably the number one candidate. We've taken steps toward these goals. We've established a fund in our church budget where we put money for the purpose of being ready to financially support members of Agape who start participating in fostering and adoption. When we adopted Jack, it was about $20,000. It would be a dream of mine to have somebody in this church say, we're going to adopt, and us say, it's covered. And today we're going to highlight other ways we're working toward this. Lisa, would you, would you come up? We've established a team of people that's going to work for us in this church to keep us focused on how we can help the vulnerable through fostering and adoption. I've asked this team to think of ways to provide support to those who eventually engage in it. And I've asked them to consider to look for opportunities of how we as a church could engage or help with opportunities in our community toward this. Uh, Tim and Dana Stewart, they're going to participate in this as well as Scott and Lisa Cosper. Tim may be finding that out for the first time. I'm not sure, but it's okay. I know, I know Tim well enough to know he's good. Uh, I've asked Lisa if she would come and just speak for just a moment about some of the needs in our community and some of the ways that we can be praying about involvement. Most of you know that um, we are a foster and adoptive family. Um, we don't have any children in care in our home right now because we just adopted the last one that we had. Um, but we've been fostering for about seven years and during that time we've seen, we've had about, we've had 18 children to come through our home from infants up through age 15. Um, and we have adopted five of those children. One of my favorite authors in the realm of foster care is Jason, a man named Jason Johnson. He's a pastor and he's a um, foster and adoptive dad. And I wanted to share a quote with you from him. He says, everything, everything about foster care is equal parts, good and bad, joy and sorrow, beauty and brokenness. And I think that that's a very accurate way to describe what we've experienced over the last seven years as we have been part of the foster care system. And I did want to share with you just the current situation right now. Um, there are around 6,000 kids in Alabama in foster care. And as of last November, there were around 500 who were waiting for an adoptive home. In Jefferson County, there are 815 children in care, and there are less than 300 foster families. 
And in Blount County, there are 75 kids in care. Um, she didn't tell me how many foster families they have right now, but she said they're in great need of families, and especially families who would take in children, teenagers, or sibling groups. And she said they have a great need for emergency homes. And I don't know if some of you know that when you, you can get licensed to foster and not take children in long term, but just be an emergency home where when children come into care, they can come to you for just a few days um, and, and you can be a safe, loving place for them in that transitional period while the county's trying to find a more permanent home for them. Um, and in St. Clair County, where we're licensed, that's a need also. Just about pretty much weekly, I get emails asking if we can take in children and, and it's, she'll, she knows that we're, we're about to close our home. She knows that we can't take in anyone else long term, but she'll say, is there any way, even just for this weekend, that you could take them? Even just for a few days, even just for tonight, um, could you take, take this child in? And I was sharing with David earlier this week, um, a story where, um, another foster mom was talking about having taken in a child that, that is already up for adoption and, and she said, we're not able, able to take this child long term, but I just didn't want her to sleep at DHR, so she's been at my house for the last week. And I was telling him that really is a thing, even in our communities, even in little small St. Clair County with, you know, where we only have, um, around 80 kids in care right now. Um, there was a time last year where I went to DHR because I go, I teach, um, the training classes for new foster parents. And I went and I came home with a 15-year-old at 10 o'clock that night um, because if I had not have taken, if I had said, you know, that I couldn't take her, she was going to spend the night. The licensing worker I work with was going to spend the night at DHR with her. And that should never have to happen. A child, a teenager should never sleep at DHR because there's absolutely nowhere else for them to go. Um, so there really is um, a huge need for foster Homes, and there's a huge need for people who, um, you know, may not be able to be um, a, a licensed foster home, but who can support and um, help the families who are doing that with the gifts and the talents that that God's given to them. And if this is something that you've ever thought about, or something that um, you have any questions about Scott and I, we love to talk about it and we would love to share with you. We'd love to answer any questions that you have about it. Um, and I just want to close with this. I want to share one other, one other, um, quote with you from the same author, Jason Johnson, because this really resonated with me. He says, kids in foster care are not the state's kids. They are God's kids. And therefore, as the church, they are our kids too. And when it comes to defending the weak, protecting the vulnerable, and seeking justice in the midst of chaos and brokenness, no entity is more exceptionally equipped and clearly mandated to take an active lead than the church. We celebrate a God whose grace is sufficient in our weakness, whose promises bring peace in our insecurities, and whose love compelled him to send a rescuer on our behalf to engage in our brokenness and fight victoriously for our justice. This is not just what we joyously celebrate within our walls at church, but also what we are called to tirelessly demonstrate in the lives of those around us as the church. It's not the role of the government. That, that is the church's role. That's why foster care is a gospel issue first and not a government issue.
Let's not assume that because we are not a family that can or will foster or adopt that, th- that we're not needed in this ministry. Dana mentioned to me yesterday when I was talking to her that you know sometimes foster families take on so much responsibility, just someone who's willing to go cut their grass in the summer would be alleviating uh, a need that they have. There are ways to care for people who are doing those things, but let's also not assume God will not call us to it. I assume or, or would assume that most of us as believers, like we would call ourselves pro-life. We should, we should make known the plight of the unborn. We should stand firm against what is the murder of innocent unborn children. But that's not the end of the definition of what it means to be pro-life. If it is, then that's not actually who we are at all. If there are hundreds of children who have no place to go and not enough families to take them in, that is a life issue and a church issue. If there are thousands of children who do not have families, don't know what it's means to have a mom or a dad. Then that is a life issue. It's a church issue. There's more to it than that. There's single moms who are having to make really, really hard decisions that we should support. Dana talked very passionately about that with me yesterday. There are families who are trying to be reconciled to one another so that they could provide a safe home for their kids. These are all opportunities in which we as a church can engage. And I feel very, very strongly that God is going to have us engage in it. So I want to ask you to pray. What is the Lord speaking to you about in that regard? Sam, if you'll come up, whoever's joining us, we're going to end in worship this morning. We've looked at six ways in which the church practically can fight for justice. Six biblical traits of people who are practicing justice. There are more, but I hope this was enough to get God, allowing God to stir our hearts. If you guys in the sound booth, you can bring the lights down. We're going to end singing together. But this is not just the... Last thing we're going to do and then get out of here. This is an important time. We want to respond to God's Word. I want to want to ask you to consider in a moment when Kevin comes up, one of the prayer groups. Before we leave today, we're going to pray for the Pounders. We're going to pray for Stacy and Corey and their family. We want to ask you first to think about what God is speaking this morning. I want to invite you to pray in response to that. I want to invite you that if there's someone in this room that God lays on your heart that you want to pray for, go to them and ask if you could pray for them. Or you may want to go and ask for someone to pray for you. Do that. Let's respond to the Lord. And let us know that first and foremost, there is a God in heaven who is a God of justice. And He has chosen to be kind and compassionate and faithful to us, patient with us. And that patience has been shown 
in the gospel of Jesus. And even today, He is calling us to come and to believe. And it is a miracle for us to be able to do that. So this morning, if God, even through this sermon on justice, is doing something that you sense in your heart, and you know you need to come to know Christ, or you need to seek that out because the Word says, if you'll seek understanding, you'll find it. I want to ask you to please not leave here today without speaking to someone about that. You can come speak to me or to Rob or to Nick. If you come talk to me, I'm going to get your information and we'll talk this week. And it doesn't matter to me if you've been at this church for 10 years. If God's revealing something to you about His reality, that He is a good Father who loves us and cares for us, And if He's revealing to you the Lordship of His Son, Jesus, would you come and follow Jesus today? Would you respond to Him and be baptized? And would you come speak to one of us privately about what that looks like? So Father, this morning I thank You that You're a God of justice. I thank You that You're a God that shows us ways to act justly on the earth and that we know the entire time we're just being like You. God, would You awaken us? Would You revive us as we've already prayed? Would You let Your Spirit rain on us and soften the ground of our heart? Would You bring the lost to salvation now? Would You cause the scales to fall from their eyes and would You give them an understanding in their heart of the glory that belongs to You in the face of Jesus? Would You call us to justice this morning? Would you speak to us about what we should do, no matter how scary it may be, to fight for justice? Would you heal us and help us? Would you provide for our needs? And would you now cause your people to worship and pray? Thank you, God, for your goodness to us.